You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew 1. As you're turning there, let me introduce myself. My name is Clint, one of the pastors on staff. I just want to say welcome to you, particularly if you are a guest with us. I know we probably have several people who are here visiting family, traveling from out of town. Just a quick reminder why we do this. Uh, week in and week out, we gather into this room, not because we are perfect people with our lives together, right? Um, but because we are broken people and in need of a savior and because we believe that that's who Jesus is. And so we gather in this room to remember that God loves us despite the fact that we don't deserve it, we haven't earned it, we never will, but because of who Christ is, he extends his love to us. And so that's why we're here today to worship King Jesus. Um, If you need anything from us, if there's anything we can do, we'd love to help you. Coleman said earlier, you can fill out a connect card and seat back in front of you. Um, There's a guest info tent out front. We'd love to see you there. All right, I'm gonna jump in this morning. It's no secret that we live in a world and a culture that is maybe more divided than it's ever been. Can you agree? And I think there's, there's one thing that might uh, divide humanity almost as much as anything else, and it's this. It's when is the appropriate time to start celebrating Christmas? I think that may divide humanity more than anything else. So really what I'm saying is when, can you, when do you decorate? When do you start listening to music? When do you start watching movies, right? When can you start to celebrate Christmas? And historically, the line in the sand has been this weekend, right, historically. You get Thanksgiving out of the way, and then this is the weekend where now you can go all in on Jesus, but, or Christmas and Jesus, yeah. But the, um, the, the line, as you know, has been pushed up, particularly by retailers, Hobby Lobby, Lowe's, right? It's 4th of July and then straight into Christmas for them. So there's a wide spectrum, a wide range of when it's appropriate. I know that many of us are sleepy, um, probably had your seventh plate of leftovers, still digesting all of that. So we're gonna get moving today, raise our hands, kind of calisthenics a little bit. So raise your hand if you can raise your hand. Just so I know how many people are playing this game. Okay, that many. The rest of you, I don't know what's wrong with you, but we'll, we'll get there. Um, hopefully it's not some kind of rotator cuff issue or something like that, but here we go. Raise your hand if you agree the weekend after Thanksgiving is the appropriate time to begin celebrating Christmas. Raise your hand. A little more than half. That's exactly what was there in the first one. Okay, so raise your hand if you think that's even too soon. We gotta wait till at least December. It's fair? Okay, purists, purists, it's okay. Get into December, I, I, I respect it. All right, what if you, raise your hand if you're Hobby Lobby. You're just d- July 4th and then you're listening to Christmas music. <laughs> Don't be ashamed, it's okay. It's actually a right answer, which we'll see here in a second. It, it turns out that we don't have to wonder which one is right because for hundreds of years, the Christian church has had the right answer and the answer is actually today. Because today is the fourth Sunday before Christmas and that is when the season of Advent begins. And if you don't know, what Advent is, that's a word from a Latin word that means arrival or coming, right? And so really what it is, is it's this season, uh, this four-week season that allows us to kind of steep ourselves in the reality that Jesus has come and that he is coming again. It's got four weeks. Uh, each week has a theme. The first one is hope, so we're going to talk about today. Uh, and then peace and joy and love, and that's what these candles symbolize that we lit. But again, the purpose of Advent is to help us remember the arrival of Jesus, to remember this that the story is not a myth, not a fairy tale. It didn't begin once upon a time, right? To remember that the eternal son of God actually came. 
that Jesus actually took on flesh and came to dwell among us. Philippians 2 says it like this, that he humbled himself, that he became a servant. He took the form of a servant, which means this, the creator God of the universe willingly entered the womb of a poor teenage girl for you and for me. Jesus actually came. He came knowing that he would be born in a nowhere town to nobody parents, right? He came knowing that those earthly parents would be forced to flee uh, to protect the life of their infant son from this crazy king, Herod, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. He came knowing that he would suffer hunger and homelessness, that he would experience sadness and grief, that he would have to endure disloyalty and betrayal from those closest to him, right? He came knowing that he would suffer the punishment for the sins of others, that he would suffer the unjust and violent death on the cross. And if you want to summarize that, it's this. The eternal son of God became a child so that you and I can become children of God. This is why we do Advent. Not a fairy tale story, not once upon a time. He actually came, but not only that, the Bible says there will be a day where he will come again. There will be this second Advent, only this time he will not come as a baby. He will come as a king because that's who he is. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. He is the one with all authority over every square inch of creation. And again, Philippians 2 says that about that day when the sky cracks open and this king of kings and Lord of lords comes back when the second advent happens, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? And you and I can say that that's what we believe. And I hope you do. We can come into a room like this and go, man, I believe that. I believe that I live my life between these two advents, between the first and the second coming of Jesus. We can say that's what we believe, but is it not surprising how easily we can drift away? And how easily our focus and our attention, especially around Christmas, can become about anything but Jesus coming and the promise that he would come again. It's surprising how easy that can happen. And And I think what happens, at least in my own life, at best what we do, if we're trying to be intentional, At best, what we do is we make time for Jesus in our busy holiday schedules. We make time for him. And what makes this so difficult is that the things that creep into focus and push Jesus out are usually good things, not bad things, good things. Gotta get the tree up. Gotta get lights in the house. You gotta get gifts for this person and that person. You gotta go to the store and shop. You gotta clean before you cook and then clean after you cook before the people come over. You gotta have all these people over your house, a million holiday parties, right? Those are good things, but here's the problem. They are good gifts from God, but if we are not careful, what can happen is those good gifts from God will displace in our heart the ultimate gift. And I wanna read a quote from Paul Tripp's Tripp's Advent devotional, what we did together as a church last year, because I think it captures this idea really well. It says this, it'll be on the screen. In a culture that uses this season to get children to dream about how their lives would be made better by possessing a certain material thing, where Christmas has been reduced to a shopper's nightmare and a retailer's dream. It is vital to draw the wonder of our children away from the next great toy and toward the wonder of the coming of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus. May the glory of the best gift ever recapture our hearts so that we really do come to adore him. And so I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think that's not just for my kids. This is for all of us. We need this. We need our wonder, the thing that captivates us and and captures our attention. We need our wonder drawn away from the next device or the next thing or the next relationship or the next bonus or the next hobby or the next whatever. We need our wonder recaptured by the coming of the Lord Jesus. And church, this is why we do Advent, to steep ourselves between these two realities that our God has come. He actually came and there's a day that he will come again. Hebrews 2 Verse one will be on the screen. It says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard 
lest we drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. The, the, the author of Hebrews is saying that the, the attention, the focus of our hearts and our lives, it's slippery. It's slippery. You know what I mean when I say that? It means it's like a toddler. You ever had a, a toddler, small kid, or you ever been in charge of one? What happens if you set it down and then you look away for a second? They gone, right? They gone. Like magnets, they are naturally drawn as soon as they aren't looked after, naturally drawn to the most dangerous thing in the house. She gets it, right? It's any open flame, boom, straight to it. Power outlets, they're there. Sharp knife, they will find it and then like bring it to you. You know what I'm saying? Um, they're slippery. And the author of Hebrews is saying, the focus of our lives is like this. If you don't pay attention, it will drift, okay? The Bible says we must pay much closer attention. Other translations of that would be say, pay careful attention. And I like that word careful, especially around Christmas, because when we think about how we're gonna spend these next four weeks and how this season of our lives will come and go so quickly as it has in years past, the word be careful is intentional, right? It doesn't mean, hey, be afraid. Be careful doesn't mean live in fear that you're gonna mess something up. It just means actually take care. Actually take care. What the Bible's saying about the focus of our lives is that if you don't pay attention and, and take care of, of that, of, of what, pay attention to what you're paying attention to, then it will drift away from what matters. It'll drift away from what lasts forever. And this is why we do Advent. And so my encouragement um, to us as a church would be that we would be intentional over the next four weeks. You'd pay attention to what you're paying attention to, that you would be intentional. Be intentional personally and be intentional with your family. And I think what's easy to do is to say, man, it's been a while. It has been a while since I have regularly opened my Bible, spent time with the Lord, since I've tried to pay attention to Jesus outside of church attendance here and there. It has been a long time. If that's you, I would say this. I'm glad you're here. And there's no better time to start than now. To begin to pay attention to Jesus. And when I say pay attention to Jesus with your family, that you do that personally, you do that with your family, um, I think it's easy. I, I can see the tendency and trajectory in my own life to, to get to the point where you say, man, my kids are teenagers. And I had all these high hopes about how we were gonna have family devotionals and I was gonna play the acoustic guitar and we were gonna be singing in three-part harmony. I had all these high hopes about what, what life was gonna look like, how I was gonna lead in this life of my kids, but now they're teenagers and I can't remember the last time we read the Bible together. I would say this, I'm glad you're here. And there's no better time to start than now. And this season, this Advent, you say, listen, we are gonna make a commitment together. We're gonna pay attention to Jesus. Doesn't mean you're gonna pay attention to everything else. You say, I'm gonna take care. I'm gonna pay attention to Jesus. And if that's you, again, if it's been a while, keep it simple. Grab an Advent devotional. I don't know if you saw it on the CBC Weekly this week. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you can subscribe to it every Friday. Information from our church. We've been a, a post to Advent resources. There's four or five there. That you can, the link's there for you can purchase it. There's one specifically geared up to, toward families. Get an Advent devotional and just say, listen, these next four weeks, we're paying attention to Jesus together. And it's gonna be bumping and it's not gonna be perfect and you're not gonna sing three-part harmony. If you do, please record it. We're gonna play it in here. Um, we, we had some of the one we did last year, Paul Tripp's leftover, but all the first service took them, okay? So I have one left. So if you want that one, you can come get it afterwards. But anyways, grab a devotional. Let's pay attention together to Jesus. Make a commitment in our lives to remember the story of Advent and the promise that not only did Jesus come, but he's coming again. Uh, and and here's, here's why. Because as you center yourself between these two Advents, between the realities, you pay attention to the fact that Jesus actually came, not a myth, not a fairy tale. The Son of God actually came 
to dwell among us. He, and he lived a life we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die. The third day he rose again and he ascended to the right hand of God the Father after spending time with his disciples. You say that happened and I believe there's a day coming again when you center yourself between these two realities, you live your life from that place and you celebrate Christmas from that place, which means that now you don't, you're not the weird guy who doesn't give and receive gifts because you're paying attention to Jesus. But you give and receive gifts not to earn other people's love and approval, but you give and receive gifts because you know that from God the Father, you've received the most undeserved gift ever. You center yourself between these two advents and you live your life uh, from that place, which means you invite friends and family into your home, not because you have to or because that's what they deserve from you, but because you have been invited by God into a relationship with him. And that's not what we deserve. We live our life from this place uh, uh, between these two advents. And, and this, this advent as a church, we're gonna look at the gospel of Matthew. Um, and so we're taking, we're actually starting a new sermon series today. So this is not just gonna take us through advent. It's actually gonna take us probably up until next advent. Okay, so buckle up, it'll be a long haul. Um, and we preach through books of the Bible. All right, so that means for you that if your little, whatever you call this thing, this ribbon, if it has been in First Peter, because we just preached through the book of First Peter, guess what? <whistles> Slide that guy right over to Matthew. All right, um, and I love that I get to stand up here and say this. This year, we preached through Exodus, and we preached through First Peter, and now we're starting the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason why we preach through books of the Bible is because we believe that the primary way that the God of the universe speaks to His people is in and through the pages of Scripture. And we don't want to pick and choose what God has to say to us. We let Him do that. But when you do that, when you preach through books of the Bible, what happens is you inevitably get the passages that most people skip in their Bible reading plan, you get the passages that no pastor wants to preach. Nobody chose to preach the passage that I'm about to preach this morning. Uh, and I want us to look at that together. So Matthew chapter one, verse one to 17, I'm gonna read these for us. It reads about like a Hebrew phone book. Um, and I'm gonna read it based on the pronunciation that I've heard other people say, mixed in with a little bit of Southwest Georgia, okay? So be gracious. All jokes aside, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of God. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation. Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. This is where it gets dicey, ready? After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. No applause. I get it. Okay. Um, so you see what I mean about this being a passage that no pastor wants to preach, right? Especially on the first week of Advent, where we're talking about hope. Because for most people, you see this and you go, Matt, only thing I hope is I don't have to read that in public. That's really all that you hope. But seriously, like honest question, why would Matthew start his gospel this way? Is he just trying to bore us to death, right? If I read the first chapter of a book and it went like that, I'm not reading the rest of the book, all right? So why would he start it this way? So you might think, well, maybe in their culture they're supposed to. Maybe it's an unwritten rule that you gotta start this way and then you get to the good stuff, except for the other three gospels don't start like that. Luke and Mark jump right in. Luke does have a genealogy, but it's a couple chapters in, and, and John starts with this beautiful poetic language, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So why does Matthew start with a list of names? Again, that essentially lead, reads like a Hebrew phone book. What I want us to see this morning is that Matthew is intentional in the way that he opens this gospel. And remember, the word gospel means what? It means good news. And Matthew's not trying to bore his audience to death. In fact, it's the opposite because in his mind and for his original audience, which was primary, primarily Jewish, these 17 verses were the most unbelievable thing they could imagine. Matthew is saying, this is the good news. Not some good news, this is the good news. And he starts his gospel this way because every single one of these names points to something incredible or rather someone incredible. And so the question that I want us to answer today is this. It's where can we find hope in a list of names? I mean, honestly, in this list of names, we're talking about hope, it's Advent, where can we find hope in this list of names? And, and if you saw there in verse 17, Matthew has this preoccupation with the number 14, which we'll talk about more in a bit, but it's 14 generations from this to this, 14 from this and this. So I figured I'll give us 14 ways we can find hope in this list of names. I'm kidding, okay? <laughs> like very few of you were with me and I'm thankful for you. All right, but the rest of y'all, I got three, okay? Three points, three ways that we can find hope in this list of names. We're actually gonna spend most of our time on the first one and then we'll hit the last two quickly. Let's look at verse one. Well, verse one again. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So before he even gets to the genealogy, Matthew gives away the entire point of the book right there from the beginning. Because verse one, it's not just an introduction to the content, this is the content. Verse one is a deep and powerfully theological statement. And it's like the next 28 chapters of the book of Matthew are really just an explanation of this one verse, right? These 16 words in the English is actually half that in the original language, eight words. Matthew says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this word that's translated genealogy here, it's actually uh, the Greek word Genesis. Sound familiar, first book of the Bible. And, and Theologians say this is a callback to that first book of the Bible to point to the fact that this is a, a new creation narrative. So what Matthew is doing when he uses this word Genesis, because he could use a different one for genealogy, when he uses this word Genesis, he's saying at the coming of the Messiah, this is the inauguration of a new creation. He's a, a deeply theological and, and powerfully theological statement here. So this is why he says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I said a few weeks ago, but it's important for us to know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. So maybe a better way to translate this for a modern reader like us would say the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Because it's not his name, it's, it's his title, right? So what Matthew is doing, he's saying this is who Jesus is. 
That's why I'm giving you a genealogy. This is why I give you 28 chapters about his life and his ministry because he is the Christ. That word means Messiah or anointed one. His point is that Jesus is the one who was promised to come from God, who would one day come and make everything that's wrong right. Matthew says, that's who Jesus is. And this is why he says after that in verse one, son of David, son of Abraham. Not just kind of throwing in some things on his resume, right? Matthew is trying to show that Jesus is the continuation of the entire Old Testament story. He's the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament story and he is the continuation of the story of what God is doing in Israel. The whole biblical story in the Old Testament, Matthew says Jesus is the fulfillment of it and the continuation of it. And so in verse one, we see Matthew says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. What he's saying there is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, and Genesis 22. So if you don't know that story, God shows up to a man named Abram He's well past his child days, okay? And so is his wife, and they don't have any kids. And God shows up to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, and he says, listen, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Not just one kid, I'm gonna make you a great nation. Then he says this, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. And Matthew says, that 2,000-year-old promise that was made to Abraham, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what son of Abraham means. He also says Jesus is the son of David, which means that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God makes to David, particularly in 2 Samuel 7. Let me show you this. So God is speaking through the prophet uh, Nathan to, to David, to King David, and he says this about him, verse 12, 2 Samuel 7. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, here's this promise from God that a king would come from him who would rule forever. And Matthew says, he's the son of David, which means that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He's the king who would rule forever, right? And to the, what we need to see here is to the original audience, they wouldn't have heard, like maybe you've heard that before, maybe you haven't in, in a setting like this. And if you haven't heard it, you might respond this way, neat. It's pretty cool that God keeps his promises in that way. Look at how God orchestrated that. They would not have responded that way because these were the promises the people of God had built their life on. That no matter how good or how bad things were, the people of God could have hope because they knew one day the Christ would come. One day, one's gonna come who was promised to Abraham who would, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. One day, one would come who will, God's gonna establish his throne and he is gonna rule on his kingdom forever. And what Matthew's saying in the opening verse of the book of Matthew is that's who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. And some scholars would say that the reason why Matthew uses that word Genesis to mean genealogy instead of another Greek word is because he's pointing back further than Abraham to the promise that God makes in the garden. And I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this is Genesis chapter three. So Adam and Eve sinned against God, they rebel against him, and before God lays out his punishment, before he removes them from the garden, he says to the serpent, Genesis three verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So God says, there's one coming. All the way back from Genesis three, there's one coming. And that's where Christmas actually starts. The story of Christmas doesn't start in a manger. It starts right here with a promise from God to not only judge sin, but to defeat it forever. A promise that one day one will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. And what Matthew is saying in these short words, in, in verse one, he's saying that this is who Jesus is. He's the enemy defeating fulfillment of the promise in Genesis chapter three. 
He's saying that he is the whole earth blessing fulfillment of the promise in Genesis chapter 12. And he's saying that he is the king of kings, Lord of lords, who will rule on the throne forever fulfillment of the promise to David. In 2 Samuel 7, he is the Christ. And so, here's the first way that we can find hope in this list of names. It's that we see in this list of names that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. We can find hope in this list of names because we see that God keeps his promise. Anyone, we got uh, kindergarten through fifth grade in here, a couple of you. This is where you get to participate, right? Um, Anyone ever make a promise to you that they didn't keep? This isn't just for the kids, by the way. I'm sure this applies to adults as well. Anyone ever make a promise to you they didn't keep? Never, okay, great. Well, Well, how'd that feel? How did that affect the relationship, right? And what if they continued to make promises to you that you got super excited about and they never kept them? How would your relationship be? Not that good. Would you trust them? Would you wanna listen to what they have to say? No, because what's the point, right? Now, what about the other side of that? Has anyone ever made a promise to you that they did keep, something you were super excited about, looking forward to it, and they came through? And then what if they continued to make promises to you and continued to never let you down? Would you listen to them? Yeah. Would you trust them? Absolutely. Imagine the, the value in that relationship. And the reason why I even give us that hypothetical is because the, the Bible, Matthew chapter one just said, the God of the universe always keeps his promises to you, which means we should listen, which means that he can be trusted. And I don't wanna do this really quickly um, because I think it's easy to hear that. God keeps his promises. Okay, great. Well, what does that really mean? Does that really move the needle in your life? Does that help you pay the credit card bill after Christmas? Does that help you finish your studying for finals? How does what God has promised me actually help me now? Let's start with Jesus. These won't be on the screen. I just want you to listen to this. Listen to what God has promised you in his word. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus promises rest for those who are weary, for those who come to him. Matthew 28, the resurrected Jesus with his disciples. Um, before he ascends to heaven, he came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Again, that's the great commission. Then he says this, here's the promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises to never leave you. And God always keeps his promises. 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is a promise of salvation and new life in Christ. Philippians 1, verse six. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. This is a promise from God to finish what he started in us. God always keeps his promises. Philippians 4, verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He says this, and when you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a promise that not only does God, the God, hear you when you pray to him, but he promises that when you do, he will give you peace. God always keeps his promises. One more, this will be on the screen. Ephesians chapter three. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Now real quick, Paul's praying that we would be strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit to grab onto something in our minds because it changes everything, and here's what he says. That you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints. That, that's why it's a promise for us, because it's everybody who uh, trusts Jesus for salvation with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And if you missed it there, the Bible just said that God loves you with an infinite and a never-ending love. The promise there is that God promises he will never stop loving you because his love isn't based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. And I read something a couple weeks ago that I think captures this better than I could say it, so I'm gonna read it to you. By an author named Brennan Manning, he says this about the love of God. If you took the love of all the best mothers and all the best fathers who have ever lived in the course of human history, and you took all their goodness and all their kindness and all their patience and all of their fidelity and their wisdom and their tenderness and their strength and all of their love, if you took all of that and you united those qualities in one single person, that person's love would only be a faint shadow of the furious love and mercy in the heart of God the Father addressed to you and me at this moment. In church, God always keeps his promises. The greatest promise that God's people ever received in the Old Testament was that Jesus would come, and he did. God kept that promise, and yet, here we are, and the greatest promise that we have received from God, despite how amazing all of that is, is that Jesus is coming again. And the question I have for us today is, we can say we believe that. How long has it been since you thought about it? Since you woke up and the thought popped your mind, I wonder if it's gonna be today. You pay attention to Jesus. How long has it been since you set New Year's resolutions and you thought, I wonder if this is the year where the sky cracks open and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes in, where Philippians 2 says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When's the last time you thought about that? See, I, I think it's easy to forget. It's easy to say that we believe those things and then go about our lives because, and, and this is to our credit, it's been 2,000 years. Same as it's been 2,000 years when God made this promise to this man named Abram and yet here it found it fulfillment in Jesus 2,100 years later, but here we are, it's been over 2,000 years since God, since Jesus ascended and said, I'm coming back. It's easy to forget that, right? And in the waiting, when you're waiting for something, when you're longing for God to do something, to answer some prayer, is it not easy to feel like he's forgotten you? Right, when God seems silent in your life, it's easy to feel like he is either gone or doesn't care what you're going through. I want us to see this in verse 17. So Matthew says this. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So here's what's going on here. It's important to know that Matthew's telling of the genealogy of Jesus is not intended to be comprehensive, which just means he's not trying to give you every single person in the line from Abraham to Jesus. He's doing something intentionally. He's structuring this genealogy and three groups of 14 for a reason. And Bill talked about this, I think, last year. But, it, but the emphasis on 14 is purposeful because it's an example of something they would do in Hebrew culture where the, the, the alphabet, each letter in the alphabet would be given a numerical value and they're trying to make a theological point with the literary structure. So an example in English would be the word dad, okay? So the letter D is what number in the English alphabet? Four, that's right. And then the letter A is... One, and then D is four. So four plus one plus four is 
Nine, that's right. So if I were to make a theological point about someone and trying to say they're dead, I might group it in groups of nine. But David, no, no vowels in the Hebrew language, DVD, six, four, six in the Hebrew alphabet, 14. What Matthew's doing is he's trying to get his audience and us to see Jesus through the lens of his connection to David. Three groups of 14 to point us to David. And David is the one who received the promise from God there's one coming, I'm gonna establish his kingdom, he's gonna rule forever. Matthew's point, Jesus is the king. He has been, he always will be. And let me connect this to the thing where we feel lost and separated when we're not sure what God's doing and we're waiting, right? Here's, here's the point, what do kings have that those in their kingdom don't have? Authority. Kings have power, kings have control. And what Matthew is showing us in this list of names is that throughout the entire story of the people of Israel, God was in control. That's his point. And again, this is not a Hebrew phone book. These are people, real people with real lives who had real hopes and real dreams and real joys and real sadness and real victories and real sorrows in their life, real people. And what Matthew is saying is that when it came to Adam and Eve in the garden, God was in control, Jesus was king. And when it came to Abraham in the desert receiving this promise from God, God was in control, Jesus is king. When it came to Isaac on the altar, God in control. When Jacob was on the run, God was in control. When Judah was selling his brother, Joseph, as a slave, God was in control and on and on and on we can go, starting with the patriarchs in the first section, moving into the kings of Israel, all the way to the splitting of the kingdom. This is a telling of the, the people of God, the story of Israel, to the split of the kingdom, to the northern and southern and deportation to Babylon, all the way to these two people, Mary and Joseph, the point Matthew is making, Jesus is king. God is in control of all. All of it. And so here's, here's the second way that we find hope in this list of names. It's this, that God is always working. God is always working, even when it doesn't seem like it, right? So this covers 2,100 years of history, not to mention the fact the last 400 years of Israel's history, from the last prophet Malachi to the birth of Jesus in Matthew, God was silent. 400 years, no prophet. No word from God, nothing, just emptiness. Imagine how you would feel about all those great promises that God made to Abraham and David in those 400 years. God, where are you? God, why have you forgotten me, right? And what we learn from this is that our God is always working. Even when it doesn't seem that way, even when it seems like he's forgotten the promise he made to Abraham, he's forgotten the promise he made to David. At this point, the Davidic line is left with Mary and Joseph. It's basically nothing. And yet God is always working. He's working then, he's working now. Church, even when it seems like God has forgotten you, maybe even especially when it seems like God has forgotten you, he's working in your life. And not only that, he can be trusted. Because not only does God keep his promises, when God fulfills his promises, they always find their fulfillment greater than we ever thought possible. So imagine Abraham, he's getting this promise from God, I'll make you a great nation. He's like, I don't have any kids. That's gonna be pretty awesome. God's gonna have to flex here. I wanna make you a great nation, but, but more than that, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And so his mind's running, I'm sure, the quiet moments of his life. He's thinking, God, how are you gonna do that? This is gonna be amazing. And as lofty as his thoughts could have ever possibly gone, they didn't even get close to Jesus. And that's what God had in mind. And this promise from David, 2 Samuel 7, hey, someone's gonna come from you. He's gonna rule. I'm gonna establish his kingdom. He's gonna sit on the throne forever. And David's letting his mind run. He's going, my son or my grandson or my great-grandson is gonna be a mighty warrior. He's gonna be this and this and this. He's gonna rule forever. And as lofty as his thoughts could have ever possibly gone, he didn't have Jesus in mind. And that's what God was doing. 
Even when it seems like God has forgotten you, he's working in your life. This means for us that we never have to wonder if God has forgotten us. If God is always working in your life, it means for you, you never have to wonder, God, why have you forgotten me? So this past week, um, we were coming back from visiting family for Thanksgiving and I had Zeke in the truck with me and we're going the speed limit down the highway, you know. Um, and we're going down, no one thought it was funny, I did. So we're going down the highway and then uh, pretty fast, 65, maybe 66, I don't know. And then this truck passes us on the right and Zeke goes, dad, we're going backwards. Because he saw the truck pass us and it looked like we were going backwards. Honest mistake, we've all seen it, right? You've seen the wheels spinning and they're going so fast forward, they look like they're going backwards, you know? So I'm trying to explain to him how we're not actually going backwards. We're actually going in the right direction very fast, okay? But it's confusing and you understand that. And I was thinking about that more as we were driving down the road and I thought, man, the Christian life is like that. When you spend your time looking at the people around you and you see how God's doing all this stuff in their life and how fast they're going, you feel like you're going backwards and God's going, no, no, I got you right where I want you. You're going in the right direction at the speed I want you to go. I am always working in your life. When you spend your time looking at the people around you, you will ask the question, God, where are you? Why have you forgotten me? But when you pay attention to Jesus, you know, he, he goes, I'm right here, all along, always working, even when you don't see it. Matthew 1 and the season of Advent remind us to pay attention to Jesus. So when the slowness of your sanctification, when God is doing something in you slower and is making you doubt your salvation, you come back to the promises of God, Philippians 1 verse 6, we read it earlier, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. God's always working. Here's the last one. Don't really have time for it, but we're gonna do it anyways. The last way we find hope in this list of names, God is always gracious. God is always gracious. So look at who's included in this list. And you go, man, these are some pretty heavy hitters. Abraham, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, right? This is a patriarch of the faith, yeah. But then you read his story and you go, what about the time that he lied about who his wife was to protect his own life despite what it meant for her and then he did it again, right? Uh, what about the whole Hagar thing? Abraham is included in this genealogy. What about Jacob? What stands out in Jacob's story is that he tricks his brother to steal his birthright and he tricks his dad to steal the blessing that belonged to his brother. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver and he's included in the genealogy of Jesus. And then you get to Judah and what's interesting about Judah in verse three, it doesn't say Judah the father of Perez and Perez the father of Hezron. It includes this part, it says Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so he had twins and Tamar must have just been his wife, right? Well, actually no, Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And that sounds like a, a, a sketchy story, you're right, and you can read it in Genesis 38. And, and Judah's included in the genealogy of Jesus. And then in verse five, he lists a woman, which would have been, uh, not done, incredibly countercultural in Jewish genealogies, a woman named Rahab in verse five, who not only was a Gentile, she was a Canaanite, but she actually was a prostitute in Jericho. Jericho. She's included in the genealogy of Jesus. And you get to King David and you're like, man, finally, King David, man after God's own heart, right? The mighty King David. And then look at what, what does Matthew highlight about David? Not his successes, uh, verse six, Jesse, the father of David, the king, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Why does he highlight that? Matthew intentionally highlights David's failures. If you don't know that story, I'm not telling you today. 
But again, Matthew is pointing out that God chooses to use David despite his failures, and here's the point. He intentionally writes deception and murder and adultery and prostitution into the genealogy of Jesus. And, and that would be in particularly bad in their day where that was their resume. This is like you go into a job resume and you put in all the dirty, horrible jobs that you got fired from in there. That's what Matthew's doing. And Jesus is saying, I identify with all these people. Every single one of them. So Matthew includes women in his genealogy as if to say this, that the coming of the Messiah means that the status of women will be changed forever. And he includes Gentiles in this genealogy of Jesus as if to say, every race is welcome in my family. There is no one. And the point is when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus and the family of God, God says there's no wrong race, no wrong color, no wrong gender. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God is always gracious. He uses people not because of their successes but despite our failures. And he invites us all to come. There's only one way to come to God and that's through Jesus. And, and you need to hear this, it's impossible to out the grace of God. It is impossible to out the grace of God. Church, we are invited in as recipients of God's promises, not because of who we are and what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done, which means the gospel is infinitely inclusive. Infinitely inclusive. No one, one type of person, no one type of background, no one type of race or gender, or any of that. It's infinitely inclusive, but it's also infinitely exclusive because nobody comes except for through him. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you've been, any of that. Who you are doesn't exclude you from belonging to God in Christ. The invitation is, like I said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And ultimately, what, what we see here in this passage, of, which we would typically skip over, is that we have hope. Because Matthew says, Jesus is the Christ. And we position ourselves between these two advents, that Jesus has come and, he, and he's not yet come again, we position ourselves there knowing that we are beloved children of a God who always keeps his promises. And we are beloved children of a God who is always working in our lives even when it's a mess. And we position ourselves knowing that we are beloved children of a God who is always gracious. I wanna close this way and then we'll sing and respond to this good news. There's an uh, excerpt from a sermon by a guy named Ray Ortland. Um, and I think he captures this well. He uses the word Savior, Messiah, and Lord, and we're talking about Jesus being the Christ. Just substitute that right in there. So here's, here we go, Be on the screen. Jesus is our only Savior, Messiah, and Lord. But I wonder if these words sound like cliches, and we hate cliches. So let's press, press further into these words. Savior, Messiah, and Lord tell us that Jesus is God's healing for all the ways that we are injured and sad. And so make a mental list of everything that you hate about your life, your regrets over your past, your anguish in the present, your fears for the future, and all the ways that you feel like you're missing out in this life. And then add to that list everything you hate about this world, the injustice, the foolishness, the sheer boredom and exhaustion. And when we make these mental lists, what we're really doing is making a list of all the ways that Jesus is relevant to us as our Savior, Messiah, and Lord. It was for these very things that weigh us down that Jesus came to lift us up in church. He's good at it. He's successful. He's winning. Our Savior, Christ and Lord, is massive as the full extent of our need. He lived the perfect life we never lived. He died the guilty death that we don't want to die. And then on the third day, he rose up from it all. And he's coming again to eradicate all evil and renew this world forever for any who have received him as Savior, Messiah and Lord. 
And so let's get all the small thoughts of Jesus out of our minds and let's be cheered on this Christmas by the magnitude of who he is at the level of everything that tears us apart. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful that that's true. Thank you that you are Savior, Messiah, and Lord, that you are, as Matthew says, the Christ. Thank you that we have a God who is as massive as the full extent of our need. Everything we feel like we're missing out on in this life, everything that we hate about this world, those are a list of reasons why you came. Help us, Father, to live as faithful followers of Jesus, positioning ourselves between your first coming and your second coming with with our, our faith firmly rooted in the fact that we are beloved by the God of the universe who always keeps his promises, is always working in our life, and is always gracious to us. We're thankful for Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's stand and sing in response.